Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them, and they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Good morning. Welcome to Regeneration. If you're new here, we just go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and so here we are in Luke. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word, and we ask, God, that you would reveal to us what you desire us to learn, what you desire us to hear, not for solely information and knowledge, but that it would change our life, that it would help us to see how far, how closely we are walking with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Judas shows us that some people who profess to be Christians don't always persevere with their profession of faith to the end of their life. Judas Iscariot serves as a warning to any of us who may find contentment in religion, in religious practices, or without ever really placing our faith and trust in Jesus, who is Savior to those who believe in him. Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus' resurrection are just a chapter two away, and right before his death is this feast. Verse 1, now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. The feast of unleavened bread commemorated their ancestors eating unleavened bread the night before their deliverance from the Egyptians in the Exodus. Now this feast called Passover served as a reminder of their freedom as God delivered them from the oppressive rule of a tyrant, namely Pharaoh of Egypt. Now this feast, it has been celebrated every year for thousands of years, even to this day we do a Passover Seder almost every year here. But what we need to do is we need to get in our Marty McFly DeLorean and we need to go back to how it was back then. Because when we do our Passover Seders nowadays, we just like, hey, everything's good, take a drink of grape juice and eat this, and, uh, and, and, and we can't get into how it really was for these folks that were celebrating the first one, or celebrating even during Jesus' day. So let's put our hats on and go back to Jesus' day and sit in a table there. So here we are during Roman times. Because in Jesus' day, the Passover feast in Jerusalem was a really, really stressful time Not for the Jews, for the Romans. See, the Romans knew that this was a celebration of God's deliverance. And the Romans were oppressing the Jews. So these guys are thinking, in today's terms, we're the oppressor. They're celebrating deliverance from an oppressor, the the Egyptians. And now we are the ones oppressing them. So hordes of Jewish people flooded into Jerusalem. And so the Romans were, you know, we are on high alert. We are on amber alert. We are ready for any type of uprising that may happen because anything can set these guys off because there might be just one guy who's going to rally them and then we're going to have a riot on our hands. It's just going to go crazy and there's thousands of them. And so the Romans were really, really worried and they knew that anything could set them off. God delivered them from Egypt. Remember, guys? God can probably do that with us too. And so we need to be ready for their uprising. 
And so it was during Passover, and and the Jewish people were primed to receive deliverance because they're talking about this deliverance from Egypt. They're talking about how God did these things and how he led them out of slavery and all these kind of things. And so here they are, and the Romans know their story, and the Jews believe that Messiah would deliver them from Roman occupation. So every year that the Romans were occupying Jerusalem, they would worry about this because they knew they believed that the Messiah is going to deliver them. So we need to kind of rally our troops here and we're going to be ready for any type of uprising that comes about. And this is why a lot of people were excited about Jesus. They saw Jesus perform miracles. They saw him feed thousands of people. They saw that he had influence over thousands of people. And so they were thinking, maybe, because you know what? I heard that he can even control nature. He can stop storms. He can raise people from the dead. So even if these Roman guys killed all of us, he can raise all of us and we'll fight them again. And we can do all this stuff. And maybe he's the one. Maybe he's the one that's going to set us free. But then you have these religious leaders who really didn't care too much about Jesus' influence. Actually, they didn't like it at all. Because they were intimidated and they were fearful because Jesus wasn't playing their political game. Jesus was actually schooling them. He was telling them, you guys are way off. You guys are making this temple a den of thieves. You guys are doing things that are not right. And so while they were looking for ways to gain power, Jesus was teaching and preaching how corrupt their power was. How come you guys are feeding just your own? You're not feeding the hungry out there. And and you guys are just so far away from God. And Jesus wasn't supporting their play for power, their play for money. And he was actually removing it from them. He was taking it away from them. And what did they want to do because he was doing that? They wanted to kill him. They want to kill him. Verse 2, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Now this isn't new. They wanted to kill Jesus for quite a while. Now you look back to Luke chapter 19, verses 47 through 48. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Now, if it weren't for the fear of the people, they would have been more aggressive in their attempts to kill Jesus. And this wasn't new either, because if you look, since Jesus' birth, his life was threatened. Right? Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Ever since Jesus' incarnation, he's been chased after, and people have been wanting to kill him. Mark chapter 3, after Jesus healed on the Sabbath, Mark chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. And then when Lazarus was raised from the dead and, and many people came to believe in Jesus after witnessing that miracle, John chapter 11, verses 45 through 48, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You see how they were afraid? You see how they were afraid of Jesus taking away their influence and their power? And you see how they were fully aware that the Romans were in power? That if they carried on like this and people were changed and they came to Jesus, the Romans would destroy what they did have if Jesus led them in that direction. And they weren't happy with the Roman occupation, but they at least had a temple. 
and they had power. And then you stay in that chapter, chapter 11 of John, and you go to verse 53, and then it reads this. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. They wanted to kill Jesus for a really long time. But they feared the people. And instead of listening to what Jesus had to teach them and what he had to say to them, they were busy plotting how they were going to kill him. Have you ever wondered why they came to Jesus at night? You ever wonder about that? Because they were afraid of the people. They had to wait till they were back home and sleeping. They couldn't do it in broad daylight. There would be a riot. And if there was a riot, Rome would come. They they put the smack down on them. Right? You're rioting. We're going to put the end to this. We're going to put the end to these feasts, and we're going to put an end to all these kind of things that you guys are doing. And so then the people would be really upset because then. Their celebrations wouldn't be allowed anymore. Their religious leaders would be taken out of power and they wouldn't let them do what they were doing before. So they had to arrest Jesus. And how'd they go about doing that? Ninja style. Right? Matthew 26, verses 3 through 5. The chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth. Ninjas. And kill him. Ninjas. But they said, not during the feast. Not during the day. Don't do it then. Lest there be an uproar among the people. So plotting to kill Jesus because they need to get rid of him. But they can't do it in broad daylight. But they had to arrest him. But how do they do it quietly? Because they can't do it during the day. Because a lot of people loved Jesus. He healed them. He freed them. He fed them. And it wasn't just the people he affected directly, but indirectly. Right? So think about the families and the friends of the people that he healed, right? Or or the people that he fed. And so he touched thousands of people. You think about the family and friends. How, How can you not get into that mind frame to think about that? Because I'll tell you something. If someone raised my daughter from the dead, my allegiance is to that guy. I don't care about anything else. I'm dying for that guy. I will do anything for that guy. Right? Anything. One of my best friends, he's paralyzed. So I break through some guy's roof and I let him down and he heals him. That's my man. Right? I'm doing anything for that guy. He healed my buddy of paralysis. I'm loyal to that guy. And the examples go on and on of the people that he touched indirectly. So many love Jesus because of how they changed their lives. Not just directly, but indirectly. So it was an ongoing challenge for these religious leaders to figure out, how are we going to get to Jesus and arrest him? How are we going to do that? He comes in the temple during the day and then he goes to the Mount of Olives. But where is he? You know, we can't just go out there in the middle of the night and have torches and like, is it? That's not him, guys. Keep it going. Nope, nope. Man, where is he? We, we can't do that. How are we going to get to him? How is this going to get done? And so they're plotting and then they couldn't come up with a plan until an insider approached them. It had to be an inside job and then they got their break. Someone on the inside would be a traitor. They would betray Jesus. There. We have something. Verse 3, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. 
Satan entered into Judas. Satan's influence on Judas was an active and impactful influence, and it affected Judas' decisions, his actions, his words, behaviors from that point to everlasting. Satan came for another shot to take Jesus out of his mission, and he's done this before. Because you look back to the temptations, right? You look, not, not the singers. You look back to the temptations in Luke chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And that opportune time is right here. Luke 22, verse 3. And the betrayal came in a physical way in the person of Judas, who was one of the twelve, that was going to do an inside job, be a traitor, and betray Jesus. Judas was flesh and blood just like you and me. Judas also had a spiritual side that was led astray. And the question is, are you and I any different in terms of our spiritual makeup, in terms of our physical makeup? Because I think that we can be like Judas and allow ourselves to be under the power of Satan, to surrender ourselves to Satan's influence. And Paul warns us about spiritual battles in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And the final analysis, our struggles are spiritual struggles. They are. But they do manifest themselves physically, don't they? Whatever's happened to you spiritually, doesn't it come out physically? Don't people always wonder, like, why do you do? Why are you making that decision? Why are you doing this? Why are you so grumpy? Why are you doing all this? And, and, and there's something going on physically. The battles are ultimately spiritual, but the physical manifestations are evident in the physical realm, just as it was evident in Judas' actions. Some of you may be thinking, was this God's plan all along for Judas to betray Jesus? Did Judas not have a choice? Did he not have a will in this matter? Did, was he just fulfilling his destiny and th- this is what he was born to do? I don't think so. I don't think so. Luke wrote, Then Satan entered into Judas. How was it possible for Satan to enter into Judas? Judas welcomed it. Judas invited it. Judas invited Satan into his life. Satan didn't force his way into Judas' life. He just simply entered. And it wasn't against Judas' will. Satan entered into Judas because he opened his life to him. You recall what God said to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Doesn't this relate to all of us? Aren't there moments when we know that sin is crouching at the door? We know it, and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it? This is just our life, isn't it? This is just how we are living. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 21, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin, for I do not understand my own choices. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Don't we all relate to what Paul wrote in Romans 7? But what was different about Judas? What was different about it? The difference is that he welcomed Satan. He didn't resist the devil as James wrote in James chapter 4, verse 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Judas did not resist. Satan entered Judas because he did not resist. Rather, he surrendered to the devil. And instead of the devil fleeing, he entered into Judas. So yes, it was prophesied that Jesus would suffer and die. It was prophesied that Judas' 30 pieces of silver would be taken, as recorded in Matthew chapter 27, verses 9-10. through 10. It says, Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. All the prophecies within Jeremiah and Isaiah, all that had to happen, but the traitor didn't have to be Judas. It didn't have to be him. Judas didn't have to be the one to betray, even though Jesus had to suffer, Jesus had to die, resurrect. Judas was not absent of his own will. Satan didn't have total control over him. Jesus said in Mark chapter 14, verse 21, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. So all the prophecies of Jesus, yes, that had to be fulfilled. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas had his will. Judas had his choice. He had his freedom to do as he wanted after he was born. But he chose poorly. Now, if this was not so, why did Matthew record in Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 through 4, this? Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elder, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He changed his mind and he confessed that he was sinning. He thought for himself. He wasn't just like possessed. He was thinking through these things. He was accountable for his own actions. So you look at Luke chapter 22, verse 4, at what Judas did. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. You see the action words there? He went away. Judas went to the chief priest. The chief priest didn't come looking for him. He went there. He conferred. He had it in his mind to betray Jesus. And so he was on the negotiating table. He was having his discussions there with the chief priest and, and seeing, what do I need to do to deliver him to you? And, and let's talk about this stuff. Let's give me a price. What would you give me if I did that? Verse 5, And they were glad and agreed to give him money. The chief priests and the officers, these guys could not figure how they were going to get to Jesus. And then comes along Judas Iscariot. And they loved the idea. They were glad. 
because they were beating on their heads like, ah, oh, we can't get to this guy. How are we going to get to this guy? In walks Judas. Who's that? This is one of his guys. What does he want? He wants to help us. What? It's our break. And all it took was 30 pieces of silver. Now, when a crime is committed, there's always a search for what? Motive, right? You always search for motive. What was Judas' motive for betraying Jesus? I think one of the big motives, the primary motive, was money. And agreed to give him money. John's Gospel gives us some insight about Judas. You look at John chapter 12, verses 3 through 6. Many therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed Mary, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Matthew's Gospel gives us some insight about the time Judas went to the chief priests. Matthew 26, verse 15, Judas said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Money. Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, verses 10 through 14, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And so I wonder, I wonder if Judas was ridiculing Jesus along with them. Like, man, this guy's foolish. You know how much money we can make? Look at all these people. You know how much fundraising we can do? We can make a lot of money. We are walking. We could buy chariots. This is silly. And I wonder if Paul had Judas on his mind when he was writing to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I think money was a primary motive for Judas' betrayal. Money can be a powerful detractor to the Christian faith. Along with money are sex and power. Money, sex, and power. I had a a spiritual formation professor of mine at Azusa Pacific University. His name is Richard Foster. Some of you have studied his materials. But he wrote this book entitled Money, Sex, and Power. And in it, he writes this, No issues touch us more profoundly or universally. No topics cause more controversy. No human realities have greater power to bless or curse. No three things have been more sought out after or are more in need of a Christian response. See, Christianity is not about being anti-money, anti-sex, 
anti-power. It's not at all. Those are beautiful gifts. But we need to have a healthy attitude, a healthy posture of admiration and respect of all three of these sacred gifts which are from God. He gave those to us. And we are to live rightly in respect to these gifts and then we can be truly free to celebrate a life of creativity, a life of beauty, a life of imagination with those things. And if we aren't careful about money, sex, power, we're bound to fall. You take a look at all the leaders who have fallen in, that you know of, whether secular or spiritual. Most of the time, it's one of those three, isn't it? Money, sex, power, it's usually one of those three. I've been a pastor here coming up on 12 years. Just in the Bay Area, I've witnessed so many pastors fall from ministry. Just in the Bay Area. I'm not even talking about nationally or Southern California or other places where I'm connected. Just here in the East Bay, there are so many who have fallen over the years. Every single one of them. Money, sex, or power. Every single one. And it's not just Christian leaders because you look at failed marriages. Secular or Christian or wherever. What what does it usually fall under? Those three things. Money, sex, and power. It's one of those three things. And I think everyone is affected by these issues. So the question to ask yourself is, how are you doing? How are you doing with these things? I was with a group of pastors this past week. It's a group of younger pastors, mostly church planters, and I'm like the old-timer there, and it's quite funny because I look younger than most of them. So some of us got to talking about what we struggle with the most, right? And so a few of us started sharing, and so it got to my turn, and and so it was just a really good time of accountability and confession, and, and so it got to me, and I was like, you know what? I think mine's money. And they all started laughing. Like, what? Why are you laughing at me, right? Being being vulnerable and they were like we already knew that i was like isn't that obvious praise god praise god because i have people in my life that know my junk and through some time even though it wasn't formal they already got that from me that that's already come out of my mouth. That confession's already come out of my mouth. That desire for prayer and that desire for accountability has already come out of my mouth. Because the thing is, once it's out, you can deal with it. Right? Once you let something out, you can deal with it. If it stays within, it's really hard. And if you're trying to deal with it yourself, you'll fail. Can anybody... Just give me a glimmer of hope to say, like, I overcame my own sin by myself. Anybody? Tell me how you did it. We'll make millions. (laughs) Right? Tell me how you did it. You can't. Because I'm I'm actually quite entrepreneurial. (laughs) My head is always flowing with business ideas. And investment ideas and ways I can make money. Always! It's just how I'm wired. It's just, that's why I did what I did before I came into ministry. That's just what, that's how I am. But oftentimes it's idolatry. It's an idolatrous thing in my life, and I've been guilty of it at times. 
I was in the, in the investment management field before I came into ministry. And then there were several years where I did both. Because me and a friend started a Bible study, and then the Bible study started, and then it kind of grew, and it became a church. And so I was doing both. And so at times, I was able to keep them in priority. Other times, not so good. Not so good. And so here I am being bivocational for several years, working in investment management and as a pastor, until I got married. Because once I got engaged, I knew something had to go. Because I can't serve two gods with my wife in the middle of it all. I can't do it. So I knew that I desire a beautiful relationship with God. I desire a beautiful relationship with my bride. And there was simply not enough time. I'm working a minimum 50 hours at my job. I'm pouring in all my free time in ministry. Sometimes I'm working 100 hours, depending on the season. I have no time, so I simply need to make time. And I simply needed to make a decision for myself about where the issue of money would be placed in my life. So I loved my job. I didn't leave it because, oh, great, I hate it. Here's a way out. Or I couldn't get another job. Like many other pastors can't. That's why they go into ministry. So, (laughs) So... I'm just being honest. Uh, I'm being honest. I've met a lot of them. So a ton of prayer, a ton of counsel. And so Katie and I, after the prayer and the counsel, decided that I would follow my calling and go into pastoral ministry. One of the biggest hang-ups, where would my money come from? Because I was offered a huge salary from the church. <laughs> you know? When I first started... $1,000 a month. My rent was $9.95. Dude. $5 goes a long way. So that was my struggle. Like, what am I going to do? What am I, what, God. That decision was nine years ago. God has faithfully provided for me and my family. Like, incredibly. We are lacking in nothing. And with that faithfulness, I still struggle. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how ungrateful I am? How unthankful I am? It's been nine years of him proving to me, I'm going to provide for you. And I still struggle. I still don't trust myself to consistently make right decisions. I've caught myself in my idolatry. You know, proclaiming, hey, I'm serving God, when in reality, I'm serving me. I'm serving money. Now, maybe some of you can do it. I'm just exhorting you to not fool yourself. To not lie to yourself. Because you are way too important not to be real to yourself. Because how many times have you used God as a method? As a method to worship your idol? He's just a mechanism to worship money. He's a mechanism to worship sex. He's a mechanism to worship power. And the one Judas struggled with the most, which I think is the one I struggle with the most, is money. For you, it might not be. But which one is it out of the three? Money, sex, 
power? A combination? combination of the three? Because a lot of people I know, it's a combination. It's not one glaring one. Verse 6. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. You look at Judas' actions again. He consented. He agreed. And he sought out an opportunity to betray him. Judas willfully chose to betray Jesus. His betrayal was a premeditated betrayal. He conspired. He discussed with those religious leaders for the opportune time to turn Jesus in and made decisions out of his own will. God was not leading him to betrayal. God was not tempting him. That's not biblical. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Judas was lured and enticed by his own desire, which gave birth to sin and brought forth death. It was his own It was his own desire. Judas was one of the twelve. You ever think about this? He was one of the twelve where Jesus was so available to him. He didn't have to make an appointment. He was so close to him. They would eat together all the time, travel together all the time, sleep in the same quarters all the time. They had full access to him. But something on the inside of him was left in the dark. You have to expose what is inside, otherwise it leads to death. Tolerance and compromise are not always good things. Evil desires cannot be tolerated. There is no compromise with those things. It will kill you. It will kill you like it killed Judas. It has to come out. And as long as sin dwells within... So does the occasion to be like Judas. Do you know people, and I'm sure you do, who used to walk really closely with Jesus, but they've sold out to some idol, whether it be money, sex, power. And now their hearts are turned, and they are totally anti-Jesus. And like Judas, I think people will come to this stunning realization of the decisions they've made, but it's going to be too late. They'll recognize that their equivalent of a 30 pieces of silver was not worth turning away from Jesus for. And their thoughts and their attitudes and their reasons for turning against Jesus all brought to light and they're going to be shown to be foolish. God called Judas like He called the other disciples. But He is the one that betrayed God. So how are you doing? Are you just showing up to church? Maybe you're even serving because you know what? Judas was handling the finances of Jesus' ministry. Maybe you're even serving. But what's happening in your heart? What's going on inside of you? How is your relationship with God really? And maybe you're not quite where Judas ended up, but are you anywhere along that path of Judas' betrayal? Because Judas didn't just all of a sudden decide, I'm going to betray Jesus. I'm going to go over there. Right? This was a process. This was a process of what was happening, right? You know that there was something unhealthy going on in his heart when he called out Mary for blessing Jesus. You know something was going on in there. 
He started out just like the other disciples, though, I think. All of them sinners, right? All of them really nobodies. All of them dropping whatever they were doing to follow Jesus. Whether a tax collector, a zealot, a fisherman, just, all right, we're going. He did the same thing. Look at what Mark wrote in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 16. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. Judas was one of those that he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. Judas was entrusted to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He had authority to cast out demons, yet he welcomed Satan in. He appointed the twelve, and Judas was one of them. See, Judas started out well. Judas started out like all the other guys. And he had these awesome opportunities to learn from Jesus, to witness what Jesus did with his own eyes. He was there. But something happened along the way. He got caught up in the cares of this life. He was the third soil in the parable of the soils in Luke chapter 8. Right? He, he received the seed, the, the Word of God, but the seed fell amongst thorns. Luke chapter 8, verse 14. And as for what fell among the thorns, there are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And it just goes to prove it's really easy to start. It's easy to start on this Christian journey. It's how you finish. It's really challenging to finish well. And it happened to one of Jesus' own 12 disciples. So, you and me? Is it possible? Here's an article written by Tim Hansel, who was instrumental in establishing a wilderness leadership development program at my university and passed away a few years ago, but really great man. And it says, To Jesus, Son of Joseph, from Jordan Management Consultants. Dear Sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we have not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. The profiles of all tests are included, and you will want to study each of them carefully. As part of our service, we make some general comments for your guidance, much as an auditor will include some general statements. This is given as a result of staff consultation and comes without any additional fee. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience and managerial ability, and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interests above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew had been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered high scores on the manic-depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, 
has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely, Jordan Management Consultants. Maybe some of you are fooling those around you. You have a great resume and you have this great outer picture, but inside, not so good. God sees that. God looks at the heart. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. How are you doing? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would reveal to us the sin inside of our heart. I pray, God, for those who believe that they can do it alone, that they can overcome issues alone, that you would give them courage to seek help. I pray, God, that opportunities would open to them to exercise confession, that you would provide them safe people to be able to be vulnerable toward and transparent toward. God, we know that the opportunity for us to be like Judas is there. And we pray, God, that we would resist the devil and he will flee from us. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would be so strong in us and that we would have such a great relationship with you, Lord, that we would be able to have discernment in all the decisions before us, that that would be just so far away. In Jesus' name, amen.